This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. But these black fingernails really bothered one of the gals, and we would sit in a meeting, and she would come to me and she'd say, I can't even concentrate. I mean, he's got those horrible black fingernails, and all I can see are the black fingernails, and I'm supposed to be working, and he's got black fingernails. You know? And it was right at 9-11. And I said, if we don't learn one thing in this company, then we are going to be as bad as the terrorists in the rest of the world. We have to learn tolerance. And if you can't tolerate those black fingernails, then you're going to have to go and think this through because tolerance is what keeps our world at peace and tolerance is what is going to keep our office at peace. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. A quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's first uh, Distinguished Lecture of the Winter 2015 Distinguished Lecture Series. I'm very pleased to have Gail Wilson-Steele with us tonight. She is widely regarded as a pioneer in the e-health technology solutions field, and she founded MedSeq in, back in 1996. MedSeq now serves over 1,000 hospitals with online solutions that empower not, patients, physicians, employees, as well as consumers. And what it allows folks to do is securely exchange data back and forth and interact with healthcare organizations in accessing medical records. I mean, there could not be a more timely topic um, with everything that's happening in the healthcare world. Gail was way ahead of it. She was way ahead of it by a couple decades. The company was acquired in, in 2012, 2012. Uh, and get, so Gail has um, taken a company from zero and taken it all the way through to a successful exit which, believe me, is not easy to do. While she earned her degree at Stanford in biology, and she's always actively promoted technology, beginning by teaching a computer-aided design course here at UCSB, her real gift is as a cheerleader for disruptive change. She's an entrepreneur. She loves pushing change into the marketplace, disrupting markets, being an innovator, pulling people in her direction and getting them to follow her path. I love this part. She understands that for work to be more than a paycheck, and it really should be for everyone here and everyone watching, work should be a lot more than just a paycheck. We need to feel that we're part of a vision and that we're making a difference. And Gail always put that into her culture of her companies. She always made sure that everyone felt like they were making a difference, and if they weren't, she worked to figure out what they could do um, to have a greater impact. In fact, her her efforts earned her a congressional um, recognition for providing a family-friendly work environment, something else to be quite proud of. Her approach to fixing healthcare is to provide tools to people, to the people that make it happen, both in the industry and on the consumer side. So she had to satisfy the physicians and the clinicians, and she also had to make it work uh, for everyday consumers. And in doing that, her philosophy was always, you know, we have the science of medicine, now we must improve the process of delivering that medical care, um, and, and practice the art of living well. 
She's a well-rounded professional. I really seek to bring people that have not just been successful in business, but that have been successful in their personal lives as well. Gail is a wonderful example, mother of four, um, and very much a philanthropist. As I've mentioned in the past, it's, it's easier to just write a check and go about your business. Uh, Gail has certainly done that, but she's done far more than that um, in giving her time and actually founding a couple of very um, uh, interesting and impactful organizations. The, the X2HN is a nonprofit which is really trying to build an old girls network for top-level medical executives um, in the healthcare world, which I think is wonderful. So it's, it's really trying to help mentor other people, in the, um, other women in the healthcare field. Um, and she also founded Health Media Syndicate, which has done a number of things, but it's um, one of the most notable is helping fight teenage obesity through an award-winning public service campaign called Live That Eight Healthy Habits. Um, and that campaign was actually used by the CDC and has been used um, all over the country. So it's wonderful to be able to um, give back when you get to that point in your life where you've been successful with your family, you've been successful professionally, now actually being able to give back to the broader, and in Gail's case, the national community. Gail traveled from the Bay Area all the way down here. We really appreciate her time. Let's show her how much we appreciate it. So I, I want to start by talking about you got a degree in biology mm -hmm. um, at Stanford, mm -hmm. and then you ended up using a degree, obviously, in the healthcare field. But what were, what were your immediate paths right out of school? So a lot of these folks are going to graduate in the spring, so it's on their minds. Yeah. So just talk to us a little bit about what, what did you do once you, once you earned that degree? So the joke was when people would say to me, so what did you do with your biology from Stanford? I said, oh, I had four kids. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, today is the 40th birthday of my firstborn son. Oh, wow. So I literally just climbed out of college and right into motherhood. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not an entrepreneur, because even while you know, I was doing the whole kid thing, <laughs> I was doing all kinds of projects that would drive my husband crazy, but always designed to make money. Yeah. Right. So I know you helped your husband um, in your business, you and his yeah. business, um, and, I, and a lot of that had to do with marketing. You were helping with marketing. Now, how, how, did, that, how did that then segue into the, the, um, the CAD experience that you got? You know, initially, I was in the advertising department of McMahon's Furniture Store, and they um, ran retail operations, and my husband had a stereo business under that. Anyhow, what we did at that time were paste-ups, and they might still be called paste-ups, but in those days they really were. You did typesetting, you had a camera, you took pictures, you had little pieces of tape that made lines, and that's how those things got to the newspaper to be photographed and run as ads. Um, while I was there, Macintosh came out with the Mac Plus, and one of the guys came into the office and set that down and said, we're going to do desktop publishing. And the old typesetter said, there's no way you can compete. I mean, you don't do kerning, you can't do fonts, blah, blah, blah. Well, he could show him that he could use desktop, desktop publishing. And that was the leap. And from desktop publishing then, you went from drafting into CAD, which was another digital form of publishing, and ultimately content on the web. It's really all about publishing right. content. Well, I mean, I think it's a great lesson for, for students to, to understand that when a new technology comes out into the market, most yeah. people go like this, yeah. 
And the real innovators go like this. They lean forward. And I remember my, my little job in 22 years old, the, the, the desktop was brand new. Yeah. Literally, like everyone was using these old Wang and these old things. Right. And I was a 22-year-old, and I said, wow, I want to learn about this. And there was four or five of us yeah. um, in, the, in a firm, a large, very large firm. And we became the experts within about three hours. Yeah, right. People were like, oh, John knows how to do that. And it was just simply because I leaned forward and said, oh, I'm curious about yeah. this. So it's, yeah. it's great that you did the same thing. Highly encourage you guys to do that as well once you get out there. And, and share it with other people. We would have, you know, they, we would dry a box and fill it with bricks. And look, so look, you can pick a brick fill. And it was like, wow, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you um, were talking about your company meetings, right. and you had a very distinctive way to describe them, you called them the show-and-tell time. Um, how did that manifest itself when you were actually holding those company meetings? You know, culture, and to, just to, to confirm what you were saying, I didn't understand that in the beginning that the CEO really sets the culture. It's true what they say, the culture starts at the top. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful to go in and say, wow, I can establish this. I had the advantage of setting culture within my family, so I already knew that there's certain ways that your family operate that mom and dad set because they're creating culture in your family. But in a business, it's the same way. And it, it also has another side to it, and that is... I had to stop making jokes because I didn't realize mm. that some of my jokes were coming across from me, the CEO. I remember one mistake that I made. We were, I was talking to someone in the hallway, and he was telling me about a problem that he'd solved, and I said, yep, that's why we pay you the big bucks. Mm. And he didn't take that the way I meant it, which was, you're so great, and we just love you, and that's a little slang expression. He took it as, maybe, maybe they think they're paying me too much. And little nuances like that. Yep. But I also did believe that we could take ourselves too seriously, which is why I called that show and tell. And the employees would go, oh, my gosh, we feel like we're in kindergarten. I said, well, that's right. <laughs> you, you are coming to this meeting. It's voluntary. You don't have to come. It's during lunch. You bring your lunch and eat it there. Um, but we know that when you come to the company, you're going to learn a lot from us. So each new employee has to start by telling us and teaching us something. Mm. So these show-and-tells were ways of new employees to come in, meet everybody in the office, and teach us something. And it became very silly and very funny. We had one guy, for example, who said, I need a volunteer to show you how to properly use hair gel. And so Marla, who's about 60 years old, and she's got this little short hair, she comes up and she goes, I'll volunteer, and puts her in the chair, and he goes, first you need lots. And he's just pouring this hair gel into her hair. And Marla is, you know, she's collections. She's on the phone in this little back office. And he's saying, and then you have to massage it through her hair. And Marla's got spikes out like this. And you can imagine how hard we're laughing. By then, everyone knew Marla. Everyone knew the new employee. We were having a good time. It was lunch out anyhow. Right. And those were the types of things that would happen. The other thing that I did is we had a long hallway down the middle of our office, and it tended to be that project management was on one side and engineering was on the other. And project management spent a lot of time yelling to engineering, would you do this for me and get this done, and I have a screaming customer, and I have to have this now. And engineering was like, oh, would they just leave us alone so we could work? <laughs> so we would put everybody's name in a hat, and once a week, we'd pick one from one side of the hallway and one from the other. And those two people went out to lunch, and the company paid for lunch. Oh, nice. Yeah. And when they came back the next week, they had to report where they ate, what they ate, and what they talked about. And invariably, it would be like, no, I didn't realize that Sue had a cousin yeah. who grew yeah. up in Idaho, and I have... And 
we were able to bridge the hallway gap, right. which is a culture gap within different departments. So for me, culture was very much about people knowing each other beyond the workplace, knowing each other as real people, not just someone in a cubicle. Right. Yeah. No, it's hard to be empathetic with somebody when you don't know them. Absolutely. Or, or it's easy to not be empathetic, I guess. Yes. Uh, it's hard to be hard on someone when you, when you know who they are, you know what constraints they're working under. Absolutely. So that's brilliant. We used to, we would have off-sites and we'd mix the groups as well. Right. Force them to be on teams together. Yes. And realize that they're really not bad guys after all. They're yeah. just trying to do the same. They're trying to help the company win just like you are. Exactly. Yeah, culture is huge. I think one thing that we focused on was, and it's sort of funny how as companies grow, you know, I think you, it's, you're always diligent about it, but you, but you need to be super diligent at the beginning because yes. like that, those early hires are, just like you were talking about your family, yeah. the early hires are going to propagate that culture. Yes, and that's even a good point. One, it's sort of like you have a little cup of water and right. you put a little drop of poison in it and you drink it, you die. Yeah. If you have you know, a, a big tub of water, you might be able to survive a little drop of poison. Yeah. I feel like companies are the same way. Like a bad apple early on, you have to get rid of that person. It's true. Or, or correct yeah. the behavior, yeah. especially right at the beginning. All right, we'll take the first student question. Hi. Um, your approach to fixing healthcare has helped several patients and health experts. How has the success of MedSeq made your life meaningful? The, uh, one might think the answer to that is I've been able to impact healthcare and change the way healthcare operates. Um, that was going to happen no matter what. We filled an industrial gap and it helped us and our industry evolve. But you know, nature abhors a vacuum. If we weren't there, someone else would have been there. Uh, the part that I enjoyed most about growing this company was creating jobs and creating new opportunities and experiences for people. We had people who started working for us that had never flown in an airplane. And by the time we were visiting clients and, and they were flying to Chicago, Detroit, all over the world, their world got bigger. I also realized that as they were taking home their paychecks, they were paying their rent, they were buying their food, they were supporting their families. That to me was hugely rewarding. To Creating oh, jobs totally. is huge. Yes. Yeah. I always say yeah. it was the braces that I played a small part in helping buy, right? <laughs> right. It was the college educations exactly. that I played a small. Yes. That's what was yeah. meaningful for me and yes. watching people, like you say, that maybe had never had an experience and then watching them grow as a person. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Make meaning. Make meaning is important, um, hugely important when you're an entrepreneur because, again, you can kind of pick and choose. Like, what impact do I want to have in this world? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick and choose something that's going to have an impact. And there are a lot of years before you see the money, you think, oh, oh. I'm going to be an entrepreneur, and what I'm going to love is like counting all my money. That doesn't happen ever sometimes, and if yeah. not even for a long time. So that's not the gratifying part. Well, yeah. and you know that money doesn't make you happy. I think right. when you're young, you can hear that and go, yeah, bull crap, sure. right? Yeah. But, but it's true. And so it, it, people that have that as their end goal, right. and that's the meaning they're seeking, are, they're the people that you know, end up with all kinds of um, bad habits and bad situations in life. Because once they get the money, they go, oh my gosh, I, where's the happiness? Like, right. I thought this was it for me. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I've said this before, past classes, look, if you don't believe me, just like read People magazine. There's a lot of rich, incredibly unhappy um, drug addicted, fill in the blank addicted people, right. because there was that void they thought the money would fill, and it doesn't. So it's not that's not why you do this. It's a hard job, 
Yeah. Um, and you want to do it where you can look back in your life and, and really have meaning, right? Through the team, through pushing. You're being modest about the impact you had on the industry. Yeah, maybe somebody else would have done it someday, but you did it. Right. And you did it at a time when nobody else was really focusing on that, um, on that space. Well, and it's true. a hard space to succeed in. Yeah, I mean, I was involved space. in a medical device company. It's brutal. Yeah. Very hard well, with all the regulations. and. Well, and there's a, there's a barrier of entry until you get past it, they, the healthcare industry itself won't even talk to you. Mm-hmm. You might have experienced that. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's tough to get in. It is. Yeah. It's very tough. Now, it's okay once you're in, then there's a barrier for the next person, but, yeah. uh, but getting in is hard. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple more questions about culture because I, I think it's hugely important. Yeah. Um, you, I mentioned in your introduction the congressional recognition, which right. I think is wonderful. What were some of the things that you did to earn that family-friendly brand? Um, there was, at the time, a survey going around um, being conducted by an independent co- research company, and they were interviewing different companies and finding ones that they thought had uh, particularly good culture and good family friendliness. I think what ours did, um, this, is, this is a while ago, and you women now are going to be working with, and there's more um, provision for health care and child care and all of that, but... I discovered early on that the most important priority to anybody in your company is what's happening at home. And until that is at rest in their minds, um, they're not going to be a very productive employee. A mother who has a sick child might as well not come to work because that's all she's going to do is think about that. So we established, for example, a sick room one of the offices in our company. And if your child was sick to the point where they were just going to lie around and watch TV and play video games all day, anyhow, they could go to that room and be there so mom could be at work and not worrying about what was happening to the child at home. Mm-hmm. Those were the types of things that got me you know, accepted into that family friendly. And it really is. Your most productive employee is someone who knows that their charges, if they have a family, are, are safe and, and happy. Yep, we'll get the next question in a second. But I, I always found that when you treat people as adults, they rise to the occasion. Right. So if you set up rules where you're sort of encouraging them to lie about a sick child or, or call in sick themselves right. and really their child's sick, right. they'll do it. Whereas if you say, hey, look, if, you're, if your child's sick, we'll accommodate you. Right. Like you you well, don't have to be sneaky. It's and like, with remote working, it right. really helps. But Go also, to my PC. we only did PTO, which is personal time off. We didn't do sick pay versus vacation pay. Right. Right. You could use it for whatever you want. Right. Yeah, and a lot of startups do that where they're yeah. like, if you're sick, stay home. Like, you know, we don't want you coming in sick. Well, you know what else we found is people would donate their PTO to oh, someone else nice. in need. Sometimes someone would have a really bad situation where they were used up all of their vacation and sick pay, and they didn't have any more. They was now going to be coming out of their pay. And if we had employees with extra hours, that's they would kind. donate it. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Like I said, another testament to the culture you created. You know, it's, well, it, it is... I'll have to tell you a funny culture question, though, okay? We had moved from the startup where we were all crammed into a little office and we were all sitting at each other's desks, practically, into a bigger space that was cubicles. And what I found is that people were so accustomed to working right in front of each mm-hmm. other that when they were locked in little boxes, they kept getting up from their desks, walking, and chatting to other people just to sort of assure themselves that they weren't alone. Right. Well, now you have a problem. Your employee isn't working, and the person they're talking to isn't working. So you're losing all this man hours. So I said, okay, we're going to have a quiet time. <laughs> and it's going to last for two hours every afternoon. And during that time, you will not get any phone calls, and you may not get oh, up from your desk. I like that. You have to stay at your desk. And the secretary, the receptionist, was... Um, 
told that she needed to tell customers who wanted to talk to them that they were in quiet time. And the customers would go, quiet time? Are you kidding? What is this, like nursery school? She said, she would say to them, wouldn't you be happy if your boss gave you two uninterrupted hours a day to get your work done? And everyone who's ever worked in a busy office that's getting interrupted all the time would go, yeah, that's great. And it only lasted maybe three or four weeks, but it got everyone comfortable with sitting in their cubicles. Mm -hmm. But believe me, I had to to hit a lot of wrath with people going, what are you doing, Gail? But it's okay. It it works. Well, and back then, you got a lot more phone calls than I think you do today, because email and text and chat. True. I know. It's true. It was all phone interruptions. You were on the phone all day long. Exactly. And you couldn't screen your call. You didn't know who it was. Yeah. 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 Much more difficult. We'll take the next student question. In disrupting the healthcare industry with a lot of government regulation, how did you make your initial push of your service to your target consumer? The government regulation actually drove that. And that, you know, sometimes regulations can be one of those factors that kill your business, but in our case, it drove it because the government came down and started telling um, hospitals that they needed to comply with various. Um, measures. Meaningful use was one. Interoperability was another. Meaningful use is all tied into the electronic health record. Uh, They needed to make these changes. The very first change that happened even before we started was that pharmacy prescriptions had to be done online. And that whole pharma to um, being online was in order to submit um, claims was the first step, but now it started happening along all these other lines. And I actually brought lists of what the government said had to be done by the hospital, and it's like a, it's like a development list for us. It was like, oh, here are the mm. things we have to put in our product. I'll, shall I read just a few? Does sure. that help? Um, that it, you know, you couldn't have had a better spec sheet. Then our sales job was to say, we're going to help you comply because. When um, the hospital complied, they got reimbursed up to $2 million in the case of a big health system for complying. So our sales pitch turned in, we are going to help you get that $2 million. It wasn't even about we're going to make you a better health care system. Of course, that was the result, but we're going to help you get that money. So in this case, government regulations drove our are basically our product, our product evolution. Right. And you can actually read them. I won't take time to do that here, but there are things like every patient record must um, include demographic information. Great. So we add a few fields, right? Gender, name, address, and our product grows with that. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Great. So one more on culture. So again, I mentioned you know, in the beginning it's super important. It's always important. Um, were there things that you found were, were more difficult to manage, as, uh, cultural things that were more difficult to manage as the company got bigger? You mentioned the transition to the cubicles. Were yeah. there other things as you saw the company expand and, and you just had to kind of say, wow, it's the way it is now? Or, no, I'm not going to let this stand? Well, what happens, and you must find this too, is that your company becomes... It has clicks. Oh, yeah. And so you have to manage Red the clicks. Red team, blue team. Yeah. yeah. And you have to try to keep mixing that up a little bit. Um, there will be people who will be more quiet. And so they, they will sometimes be passed over just because they are just more quiet workers. Mm-hmm. Um, gossip. 
we had one incident of gossip that started, and it, I, I finally just called everyone out on it. I had everyone come to a meeting. I said, I understand there's some gossip that we need to address here. Could we talk about that, please? And that, you know, it just all goes away. But yep. you really have to remember these are people, and people are very complicated, and so their lives can come and complicate it. I'll, I'll give you a good example. We had one developer... <laughs> who was, he loved, in his spare time, he loved to be in drama. So he would come dressed to work in anything he felt like. <laughs> Leopard tights. He painted his fingernails black. Um, we asked him one day to dress up because we had clients in the office, and he came in a top hat and tails. You know, you just never knew what he was going to do next. But these black fingernails really bothered one of the gals, and we would sit in a meeting, and she would come to me, and she'd say, I can't even concentrate. I mean, he's got those horrible black fingernails, and all I can see are the black fingernails, and I'm supposed to be working, and he's got black fingernails. You know? And it was right at 9-11. And I said... If we don't learn one thing in this company, then we are going to be as bad as the terrorists in the rest of the world. We have to learn tolerance. And if you can't tolerate those black fingernails, then you're going to have to go and think this through because tolerance is what keeps our world at peace, and tolerance is what is going to keep our office at peace. So thank you for doing your part and being tolerant. Yep. Yeah. I think that's good advice. I, I mentioned that if you treat people like adults, they tend to rise to the occasion... Um, if you treat them like high school students, they'll revert. Like it just becomes like high school all over again. And yeah. so I would, the way I would is very similar to what you did. If there was a couple people and it was just I was hearing, you know, some ridiculous school, you know, playground type stuff. Yeah. I would have them both come in and I go, hey guys, we got something to talk about right. here. And then they would both become the nicest people in the world. No, 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 I'm, no, I'm good with you know. Good. So anyway, yeah. just always just shine a bright light on it, and it usually goes away. Well, it's true. You expose it. Right. That's the main thing. And they, they see how childish it is when you, when you bring it in that, in that light. You know, it's, I think most adults go, yeah, you're right. It's kind of, yeah. kind of weak. So let's talk about MedSeq. So I love origin stories okay. of companies. What, what was the genesis? You know, we understand that you, you came through the CAD world. You got really experienced with that. You taught that. But what, what pushed you to start that? That was a big undertaking. What pushed you to start that business? It, it was a lesson learned from a prior attempt. Um, the prior attempt was America Online had 3 million users. That was huge. 3 million doesn't even sound like, I mean, it's nothing now. But it was when the mantra was content is king. Today we have user-generated content. It's very different. But then in order to people, have people come onto your site, you needed to have something there for them to come look at, right? So America Online was looking for content providers. And I hired on with, signed up with them to provide content about specialty foods. And it was inspired by this little postcard I got in the mail from Maytag Blue Cheese, and it looked like a little picture and a little text, and I thought, that looks like a little AOL website. (laughs) And so I started going out and going to all the specialty food companies and saying, I am going to put your product online. And there are 3 million users out there. Can you imagine how many cheesecakes you're going to sell? And they did get excited too because it took a while to collect the pictures and the text and everything and there was a day when we were going to launch we had one company build an extra freezer to hold more extra free cheesecakes and we had um, adrian's lavash and um, john macy's cheese sticks and i was having such fun going to specialty food trade shows and selling <laughs> all this stuff so we had a nice little collection of content for aol when we launched we waited for the orders to come flooding in and what do you think happened crickets just 
little drips and drabs. And when we got an order, it was on an insecure form with credit card numbers and all of that. There was no transaction processing at that time. And we would go then and ship the stuff, or the, the company would ship the stuff. We had 28% credit card fraud. Uh-huh. And I thought, you know what? The web is not ready for transactions. But the web is really good at helping you find information. So what are people looking for that they have to go to print resources which are immediately out of date? And that is doctors. And you're probably not at the stage where you're looking for doctors, but in those days, if you wanted to find a doctor, you either had to go to the library where the boards had their lists, books of doctors, or um, your health care provider would give you a provider directory, which was almost immediately out of date. So we, I decided we're going to put a big database of doctors up there, and we're going to be able to search that so people can find a doctor. Just a name and an address was a big deal and a specialty. So that's what we did. We uh, had to talk the company into letting us have their list. Oh, no, we don't want our list. Someone's going to steal it, and that'll be it. It was you know, one of these mail list kind of companies. And we convinced them they would only see one doctor at a time. And then my marketing approach. Now, marketing is so different. My marketing approach was to create a video. This was a VHS video that we sent to doctor's office that told them how by being on our directory of medical services, they could do a profile page and help teach patients about themselves. And it's seven minutes long. You are just dying of all the explanation of why they need to do this. It's so long. Everything about it is so old school. It's really funny. But I even um, like the title, The Internet Directory. Yeah, and you see this logo up here? Within just weeks of sending this out, the Blue Cross lawyers wrote to Uh. us and said, you are in violation of our um, copyright because we own the Blue Cross. So we changed it to red and made the letters blue and the Red Cross called us and said, <laughs> you are um, violating the 1906 Geneva Convention. We are the Red Cross. So, you know, all these sets. So when you get your first letter from a lawyer, don't you panic yes. in a startup? Yes. We ended up being purple for a long time. <laughs> purple cross. <laughs> yeah. Surprised they didn't call you next. Yeah. Uh, so the, the journey was a good one for you. You, you were at the helm for many, many years. What... Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the exit? Was it something you were looking for? Was it, was it time for you? Yeah. Um, all through the life of a company, you keep wondering if now's the time to sell, right? right? What's right. our valuation? And with this, you usually get it at the point where you either need to get in more money or you want to sell it and let someone else take your company and grow it because they have the money. So that happened in, in a number of phases. And there are also times in the economy when money is easier to come by. Sure. There, are t- there were times in MedSeq where we literally did not know how we were going to make payroll. And I called one of my investors, really kind of hoping that I might get him to spring for a little more capital. (laughs) And he said, Gail, sometimes you just need to take a walk around the block, come back to your desk, and make the hard decision. And that meant letting go 30% of our employees the week before Christmas. And it was brutal. But after that, um, we were able to get to profitability, and once you're profitable, you own your, your future. You, don't, you can grow or not grow. You can get more money or not get more money. So that, I mean, positive cash flow first, but then after that, profitability. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Control your own destiny. Yes, exactly. We'll take the next uh, student question. Actually, while you're getting ready, I'll ask a question. Are you ready? Go ahead. 
Um, have you ever had to sacrifice certain aspects of your original goals or plans that once seemed essential to you? If so, can you describe what that situation was like or how you dealt with it? That once seemed essential. I think once you start working and trying to keep your doors open, you understand that the essential part is that you're doing something someone's willing to pay you for. You know, you start off with the dream and the vision, but you have to keep the doors open. And so when we went to these doctors and tried to sell them web pages and they wouldn't pay for them, I had to change right then and there. So we created an example hospital for St. Francis Hospital here in Santa Barbara. They're not here any longer. And I said, I'm going to build you a website for free, and it's going to have a searchable doctor directory. Your 600 doctors are going to be right on your website. That's what we were doing differently from other static web pages. Suddenly, we were in the hospital website building business. I never intended to sell to hospitals. I was trying to help patients find doctors. But those were the guys who had the money and the marketing budget to buy a website. So that's a huge change in the business. Then we were developing, and then we had another decision. Do we want to sell our software? Mm -hmm. We ended up becoming a software licensing company instead of a web page development company because we essentially empowered our customers to do our job, but there were more opportunities by creating more and new software for them. So very different from what I thought started with. But you do it because it's an economic opportunity, not so much because it's a loss of your vision. Yep. Well, I think entrepreneurs do those sorts of things second nature, and now they have a very in vogue term, pivot. Pivot? Right? Pivot. I like that, yeah. But all it is is like just looking at the market and going, hey, that's not working, let's do this. Right. right? Oh, wait a minute, that's not working, let's change it. And you have to be smart about that because yeah. you don't want to thrash around and, and never get anywhere. Right. But you also have to be very willing to say, hey, you know what, that was my vision, but it wasn't a great vision given the facts now, let's go do this. Right. And the guys that don't make it are the ones that can't let go of that. No, I'm right, the doctors just don't get it. You know, and they just try right. to... And they go out of business. They do? Yeah, you, got, you can't have a big ego if you want to be a successful entrepreneur. Yeah, Cust there's the a very right. hard thing to do, though, and that is when you get to the point where you, you have to analyze, will I break through this with tenacity or am I beating a dead horse? Right. Because there are moments when huh, you just really can't tell. No. Nope. Yeah. You could tell after the fact. After the fact. Hindsight's <laughs> really good on that one. <laughs> yeah. I should have, and I have one of those. I right. should have stopped. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you never, and it's impossible to know at the time. Right. It's often unknowable, so yeah. you, do, you make the best guess you can. Yeah. So we have a lot of women in the room, which I love and I'm very happy for. Yeah. I have a 22 year old um, entrepreneurial daughter. I love to see women entrepreneurs make it happen. Do you have, I mean, obviously your advice is, is probably going to be applicable to a lot of the guys, but do you have specific advice for a woman entrepreneur? 22, 23, 24, like in their early stages? I'll share advice that I got um, from Stephanie DeMarco, who is another woman entrepreneur. I think Brian knows of her, and you might have heard it's one of, anyhow, she started um, a back-end office software company, and I got to the point of really sort of frustrated. I mean, you do feel like you're battling out there every day, and, and because most of the people you're battling with are guys, you feel like you're battling the guys every day, but you also are battling, you're just battling. I think right. you're battling no, a totally. lot. Yep. Yeah. Um, she said, wear Teflon. Let it roll off your back. You just can't take this in and make these personal battles. Just, if you get comments, if you get hurtful things, if someone 
calls you a bitch, which is going to happen because you're being confrontational and that's what they think of confrontational women, let it roll off your back because that's the only way you can handle it. Yep. Yeah, don't get insulted. I think, I think that the, the key takeaway I get from that is just don't take it personally. Because most yeah. of it, I mean, that, you know, maybe somebody calls you that word, maybe that is personal. No, but no, but you, oftentimes it's not personal, but you, you're in human nature, you want to you wanna make it personal. Okay, so my degrees in biology, and I put everything in a biology context, we can evolve and evolve. We are still men and women, and we speak different languages. Um, and men often don't understand women speak as women don't understand men speak and there's misinterpretation but the hardest point for men and women in my opinion is at a point of confrontation if a guy has it out with a guy he gets up and he says you're acting like a now we'll just go with all the explicitives the other guy looks at him and goes whoa he's really mad right I get his point look at Joe got really mad if a woman gets up and does the same thing they're, they are going to call you things. They're going to think of you as, I can't, I mean, I, I guess we're on TV and I can't use these words, but they will, they will really put you down as someone who um, is not fun to work with, is bossy. I mean, you get all these other names that in the guy's world are acceptable. And somehow, I don't know if we'll ever cross that barrier. Um, so in, in addition to not taking it personally, which yeah. I think is advice for men and women, what, what were other ways that you dealt with that? The, the more gender-specific issues. Gender-specific? Whatever you do, no matter how mad you are and what you say, you do it with a smile. Because somehow when you smile, it gets through better than getting mad. So did you, I don't know if you personally had this issue, but I've worked with some women that, again, very different than men, they'll start when they get emotional and get angry, they start crying a little bit. And yeah. that is really, that's hard to deal with as a man because men are used to, okay, woman's crying and, and it's just, we interpret it in a very different way, whereas the woman is like, you don't understand, I'm just bad. You know, She's like, frustrated. Right, yeah. right. Well, frustration is exhibited differently. Right. Yeah. Men want to take each other out to the parking lot, women start to cry, don't cry. The guys don't know how to handle it. It somehow sometimes seems manipulative to them, even though for you it's just the last straw, but right. it seems manipulative. It doesn't work. I mean, it's a tough emotion. I'm a crybaby, by the way. I Are cry. You? Oh, I, I'm so Aww. sentimental. No, seriously. I don't cry like a confrontation. <laughs> <laughs> My family, if they ever see this, they'll be able to concur. I'm, I cry at the drop of a hat, movies, etc. But not in business. And I think men, when they see somebody crying, it's a weakness. Yes. It's a sign of weakness. Yeah. And again, it is kind of like it feels manipulative. Like, oh, you're trying to get me right. off point by I had a girlfriend that did this or, you know, whatever their history is. Right? You're exactly right. They end up putting you in the categories they know. Girlfriend, manipulative, wife, nagging, mother, <laughs> controlling. Oh, right, right. You are either the girlfriend, the wife, or the mother, and all of those have negative connotations. And very seldom... I've really never thought of it this way, but very seldom would, I don't think a guy would say, oh, you're just like my boyfriend or my uncle or my, right. I don't think we tend to do that. You know, I'd, I'd maybe, maybe a dad, maybe a father figure at some point, but yeah. I've never, I can't remember in my life where I just get mad at the person or I just want to talk about the issue, but I don't remember sort of personalizing, oh, you're, I had an uncle that did the same thing with me. Oh, I so see that's an saying. interesting way to look at that. Yeah. Whereas I think you're right, men will sort of start to put it in the relationship boxes that they've had before. Sure. Do you think women do that with men? Do you start to say, oh, that's like your boyfriend I used to have? Or It's, it's not so much, it's just sort of the associated um, 
relationship with that? I mean, we have boyfriends, we have husbands. Do we put them? I don't know. That didn't happen to me. I didn't see that. Because you have so many different relationships with men at all different levels. It didn't get categorized in my mind anyhow. I, I loved working with women. And when I look back on my career, I had a lot of wonderful men that worked with me. I was very fortunate. I just had a great team over many years. But when I look back at the people I really counted on, like my lieutenants, like the people, that they were all women. Really? Oh, yeah. And some, some of them were decades long, like some people I worked with over. And I thought, what is that? I mean, I just really enjoyed working in, with that relationship. So we have a new rule now from women entrepreneurs, and that is always work with crybaby men. <laughs> <laughs> Go to a sappy movie with them, and if they cry, then you're in. <laughs> and they're, no, and I don't they're know. good. I, don't, I wish I understood that phenomenon better. Okay, I'll tell you a boardroom story that is my favorite story. Do any of you remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Um, with Tom Cruise. Show me the money. Show me the money, and he's a sport agent. And the one gal that's going to stick with him through the movie is Dorothy, and she comes with him, and she's the one that said I, I, uh, it started with hello. Yeah, you you, got, you hello. had me at hello. Okay. I'm in a boardroom, and I have always been in a boardroom. It's all men, because that's just how it works. As the CEO, I'm the woman in there. There are all the investors around there. And I'm trying to talk about a strategic merger that I'd like to bring to the company. And I'm saying it is such a great merger because we've got a great sales team and they've got a great development team. And we work with these hospitals and they work with those hospitals. And we have this location and they have this location. I just can really see where these two companies are going to be great together. And one of my board members pounds the table and he says, it's like the movie Jerry Maguire, show me the money. (laughs) And I said, I thought that line was, you complete me. (laughs) Okay? Completely different perspectives. Both of them right. You can't do a merger unless you can show the money. But you also have to put two things together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's why you need men and women at your companies. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, we'll take the next question from the students. Hi, so uh, I wanted to ask, since you're working in a relatively new field, you must have found yourself at a point where like, you feel that uh, everyone's against you and you lack support. So like, my question is, like, what do you do when you feel like you lack human resources and support from other people and you're like, fighting on your own? You should never get to that point. Um, and the reason is that you have to start currying your supporters from the very beginning. The first person that you're working with needs to be a fan. And the second person Mm. needs to be another fan. And the only way you're going to succeed is by surrounding yourself with people who can believe you and your story. And if you don't have that, you really are going to be fighting a very, very difficult battle. So in the very beginning especially, make sure that the people that you're with are loyal to you and believe what you believe and believe in you and have respect. Um, And then... If you end up meeting opposition around, along the way, at least you have those people that are part of your inner circle that you can go to. Yeah. Don't try it alone. Yeah, and I think having mutual respect with those people so that they will tell you when they disagree. You oh, know, absolutely. But, and you respect them, they respect yes. you. And, and, there's, and there's, it's sort of a loyalty and trust that's, that's a given. Like, there's no question, right, about we don't have to talk about the, that. We, I trust you, yeah. I'm loyal to you. Now let's talk about yeah. the issues no. at hand. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. But you can't be fighting internal battles with people. Either they believe or they don't. You know, get the heck out of here if you don't believe. Yeah, yeah. right. So if it was 1996... 
I wish I had a time machine. If, we, if it was 1996, what would you say to Gail if you had five minutes to sit her down and say, okay, honey, you're starting this company. Here's what you need to know now that you've been through it. Um, well, let's put it this way. If I were to go into starting the company with a little more resources than I had because I, I had ideas, I had you know people I could talk to, networks, people I could pick up the phone, um, I would know more about accounting. I would have taken a course in basic bookkeeping. I literally could not yes. read a P&L Understand when I started. Understand accounting, yes. Yeah. At least the base, just the, the P&L and the balance sheet. Understand what that's all about. Yep. Um, and I would have, well, you're naturally kind of salesy when you're doing this, but formal sales training and negotiation skills are really good to have. And uh, we took the first guy that started selling for us, and we sent him to sales training. And those little, those little methods, they're used by all salesmen. They know they're using them on each other. They still work. They get to the close. I can be a cheerleader, as it's said in my bio, and I can stand on the sidelines, but I'm not necessarily the best at closing the deal. That's a different skill set, and that is a trained skill set. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that's worth investing some time in. Yep. Yeah. So we talk, um, we'll get the next student question in a second. We talk in this class a lot about mentorship. You already mentioned a woman mentor that you were lucky enough to be able to bounce yeah, that question off of. Exactly. Were, were there other mentors or um, if you want to talk about that particular relationship, how did you find your mentors? I think that's one question students often ask is like, okay, great, I read about mentorships, but how do I find a mentor? Yeah, you know, mentors are hard. And I think women mentors, for women to find women mentors are harder because in, oftentimes she will be splitting her time between two things already. She'll have her company and maybe she'll have a family. And she doesn't necessarily have extra time. Um, but they're very helpful. When I started that X2HN group, it was really about women supporting each other in an industry that was very male-dominated. We go to that trade show, and it was you just look across the floor to yep. be a sea of shows. IT guys and doctors. and Yeah. And so I started inviting a few ladies out to lunch, and we grew into a bigger and bigger group. And we sat around the big, long table at that first meeting, and we said, we want everyone to be able to say what it is that you could use help with, and anyone else in the group can then answer with what they can provide help for. Well, you would have thought that it would have all been business questions, but it was very quickly personal questions. <laughs> I'm about to have a baby, and does anyone have the best idea for how to bring a nanny in? How can I find a nanny? Or they would be business things. I'm looking for a CFO, and if anyone knows of a good one out there. Some of them provided services the others could use. The girl who ran the PR agency got lots of business because now she had these women that trusted her. Um, so uh, cultivating not only an individual mentor but also a network of... Um, we're talking from the female perspective here in particular. Uh, that affinity, building those affinities is really helpful. And you'll find that your mentors are better... At cert- Some mentors know more about certain things than others. So you don't have to have one person that's just your shepherd. Mm-hmm. You can have someone that knows a lot about banking and will talk to you about that. And, and sometimes it's a give and take. You know a lot about banking, but I can help you with web development. And you develop your relationship that way. So, um, Were you fortunate to have men mentors? You, would you yes. encourage women to? Yes, and that, and that was very helpful. Um, one of the board members in the company literally at one point in the very beginning i'd made a very bad hiring choice and that person was kind of taking my mind and 
sending me different directions. And he saw it, but I didn't. And he stepped in and said, okay, I'm going to take over for a few weeks, and I'm just going to do a few little adjustments. And he got rid of the bad apple mm -hmm. that I didn't see mm -hmm. and um, sort of came in like a professor and just really guided me along. At first, I was a little insulted, like, wait a minute, I can do this. But um, no, he just had the experience. He had the distance. He had the 20-20 vision that I really needed at that time. So uh, you want to, of course, you want to make sure you can really trust that person, but it, sometimes the mentor really gives you the critical help at a critical right, time. Right. Yeah. Did you find that the maintaining the relationship between a male mentor and a female mentor is different? And if so, like how, what differences did you find? Um, I just found that for me, it seemed that the male mentors had more time mm -hmm. than the women mentors. Mm -hmm. It was really, it really boiled down to that. Right. And, um, and, of course, there were more of them to choose from. It's just the numbers. Right. There are just more guys out there. Right. Yeah. And the chemistry has to be right. Like, you just can't track, you can't chase down a mentor. It's like if they're just, no. if they don't have time, don't have inclination, whatever it is, then you just really have to find somebody who does. Yeah, we've talked about this in our X2HN group about female. And you might want to explain that name. I didn't Oh, X2. We want it to be the um, Women's Executive Healthcare Network. So women's executive was turned into two X's with an X and a two, which is actually a double X chromosome for women. So it's just our little joke on that. Um, <laughs> but as far as the mentorship is concerned, one of the problems that can happen is that you're a, a charming, lovely young thing, and you are asking help mm -hmm. from a guy and he starts off thinking, this is great, I'm going to be really helpful, but he, you are attractive, and he's attracted yes, to you. It goes to biology, I'm sorry, but it ends up becoming complicated, and that complication doesn't happen with a woman. Yeah. I think in, we had a mentor conversation last quarter, and this came up, and it was a guy, so I'm sitting there going, Man, we're really not the right people to answer this, so I'll kind of ask you this question. I think the advice I gave was something like, women need to set the boundaries. Okay. Not like, in, you know, just in an uncool way, but just sort of make it clear, like, what's going on here? Like, I'm here to get help from you, and that's what's going on here. Yeah, but remember, you're going, oh, that's so great, you've been so helpful, and he's going, oh, yeah, <laughs> feeling really good about this. You know, and it just, it very quickly, it, it, you just, you want to stay business-like. I found right. that most of my mentor relationships with the guys became avuncular. I mean, they were like uncles. Yeah. They weren't dads. They weren't brothers. They weren't boyfriends. They were like your uncle. And, you, and you'd call them. And you, you could cry to them when you got really frustrated. And that brought out the uncle in them. And right, it really right, right, right. It worked very well for me. Right. Yeah. That's, a healthy, that's a healthy dynamic when, when, yeah. when they're taking that approach yeah. um, with the woman. I just always say, you know, just women, we're dumb. We're idiots. Guys are complete idiots. So Make sure we really know what is going on when you're talking to us, because we do not know half the time. Right? <laughs> so I think women have to be very clear. Okay. Find the uncle. Find that uncle. Yeah. Uh, we'll take the next student question. So MedSeq began in 1996, which was just before the dot-com bubble. And obviously, given that you were an internet and software company, how did that event affect you, and how did you get through it? Because obviously, you did. The bubble, and you're talking about the, the bust of the yes. bubble, right? Yeah. And that, while the bubble was, has there been, I don't know if other industries, while the bubble was happening, they would say you could smell the money burning in the hallways. Mm. Companies would 
could get money so easily. We had, a, what I found over the years is what has really changed is the metric by which investors look at your company. And in those days, they were looking at 12-month forward-looking revenue. Can you imagine valuating your company on what you think you're going to make over the next 12 months? And it was a real number. People were going, oh, yeah, it's a multiple of 12 times the <laughs> forward-looking right. for valuation. So they would get a lot of money, and the first thing they would do is buy beautiful marketing materials. And they had matching T-shirts, and you got beautiful things like this when you went and visited them, and they had conferences. And when the bust came, they could not turn off the spending fast enough. They had expensive right. offices. They had Arion chairs. Remember Arion oh, chairs? Yes. $800. Right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. There were so many of those available after that. <laughs> um, and we had never been funded like that. Our, our funding was just very, very tight funding, always common shares, always private investors. Um, so when we needed to pull back, it was less painful for us. We could do it faster. We didn't have that big hose of money going out. And that was part of the 30% the layoff, but we could reach cash flow with that. Uh, so I remember being at a trade show, and we were in this little 10 by 10 booth, and we're standing there hoping people will come. And big companies had these gorgeous three-story booths, cities, with all these free things that you could come and pick up. And one of the guys from the press came through. You know, he was a journalist getting stuff for the trade magazine. And he said, so I see you're still in your 10 by 10 booth. I said, yeah, and did you see those guys? He goes, I guarantee you half of these companies will be gone next year. And he was absolutely right. They were gone next year. So sometimes it's not how good you are. It's how the competition leaves with you still standing. <laughs> yeah, if you're the last one standing, you're the winner. Exactly. Exactly. I've been to treasures and, and seen the same thing, where you're just looking at these booths, and it's very intimidating when you're in the 10 by 10. Oh, I used to yeah. call it the uh, startup ghetto, like all the, oh, yeah. all the startups with little crappy little booths. Oh, right. Um, but then those companies, you're right, you know, half of them evaporate, yep. the funding disappears, yep. and then you sort of, the, the smart money, the people that didn't waste all their dough yep. end up winning the day. Be very careful with leases, because leases are mm. long-term liabilities. And yeah. if you sign up for your cute or big or whatever office, and you've got a 10-year lease, that landlord's going to hold you responsible for all that money. So one thing we always did with leases is we always had an escape clause, which meant if we had to, we could break our lease, pay three months to get out, and it saved nice. us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you have to sign personal guarantees? Yes, in the beginning. That and that was a scary. big deal. Well, yeah, your house. In fact, um, one of the investment opportunities, which is ValueClick, um, I did on a credit card. I Ooh. mean, can you imagine? You're, you don't have any money. You're barely getting paid, and now you're going to go and invest in a startup on your credit cards? I'm going to ask you about Brian yeah. uh, in a minute. Yeah. So we talked about um, you getting mentors. Did you have opportunities? I know you had the, the, you know, the um, X2HN, but were there opportunities other, outside of that where you got to act as a mentor? And did you have any women protégés? No. You know, I've acted as a woman, as a mentor before, and partly through the, your program here. Mm -hmm. um, but, oh, there was one company, two moms, and I was able to work with them a little bit. And um, mostly I saw the writing on the wall with that one. Mm -hmm. Just I could see that the, the amount of work they needed to do and the amount of commitment they had at home was not going to work. But... Um, yeah, for, no, I have not in, in a formal way. It's been guys for the most part, just because, again, it's the numbers. There's isn't more of it? them. Yeah. 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 
So I wonder if it's in, in a very perverse way easier for a woman, even though the numbers game is, is, is not in her favor, but there's less women-to-women entrepreneur-protege relationships. So it may be that if they can break through that, I know you don't have enough time. How can I accommodate your schedule? Yeah, I, it's probably that. about finding, because if it's a numbers game, it's just that there's more and fewer, and therefore yeah. the search is a little harder. But I would say if you women were willing to pick up the phone and actually actively search, you could find women mentors. Yeah. And we'll take the next student question. Um, so what in experiences in your life inspired you to create this family culture in your businesses? And then what did you what would happen with those who were not on board with that and how did you kind of have to react with those who kind of wouldn't do like the show and tell and stuff? It's like growing up. I mean, first of all, what inspired me to do that is that's the culture I knew because I'd raised a family, I'd been a soccer coach, I mean I knew cheerleading, I knew settling disputes, that kind of thing. Um, however, the company does start to outgrow that. And they start to, it, partly because it's a time, it, it's, you're managing every single hour of every employee. And so I, I know CEOs have done things like um, video broadcasts or places you're supposed to log in and listen to them video chat to sort of save time. Um, and then the company starts to just become more process driven. And so everyone has this job and you're time tracking and you're, um, it, it just changes. That's really an early stage type of feeling. I don't think you could do it in a great big corporation with lots of process. No. Uh, no, and it would cost 20 times more. It would more cost too much, yeah. fifth is efficient. But the people who were there at that time and are still with the company, and we have many employees who were there then and are still with the company, they look back at that fondly. I remember <laughs> when we were a family company we had show and tell. So you have to realize that when it's time to, out, to grow beyond it, you have to let it go, and we did. It went from you know, weekly to monthly, and then finally it just sort of changed altogether. But um, you, out, yeah, you outgrow it. But it's good for the right stage. And it gives the old-timers... Oh, sort of good memories, and, you know, right. I would yeah. see that, too, the, the old, you know, I would look back and go, I just remember being a lot of hard work and yeah. a lot of hassles, but uh, right. yeah, it's, it's hard. Don't do it. Just go get a job, get a paycheck. Oh, but, but to that point, I think it's hugely valuable to have a job at least before you start a company. Absolutely. Don't you? Yes. Oh. I don't encourage students to start a company right out of school. I say find a space you're interested in, you're passionate about, and work for somebody else. Make mistakes on their dime. Absolutely. And learn what it's like to be part of a team. My son's in CS, and he, um, he's developed apps. He's even sold them and gotten money and that kind of thing on his own. And he got an internship working with a team of developers. What a difference to learn about, yep. you know, version control and rapid um, development and uh, all the different things that they do, iter- different iterations. And it was so different from working on his own. There's no way he could have experienced that in class. Right. He had to work for it. a company for no, that. You have to experience it. Yeah. Gail, I so appreciate you coming down here and talking to oh, us. Yeah, Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.